Thank you for listening to this forum podcast. Please check out our website for a rich archive of podcasts and writing from contemporary philosophers and other researchers on a wide variety of topics. The Forum is an educational charity dedicated to bringing academic philosophy to a broader audience. Please consider donating to us via our Just Giving page, which you can find on our website. Happy listening. Thank you, Beth. Uh, my name's Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum and I'm going to be chairing this evening's event. Um, just a quick note about the strikes before we begin. Um, the Forum is an independent charity. It's not an academic institution. Um, and our events are aimed at a public rather than an academic audience. Um, those of us on the panel who are UK-based are striking at our academic institutions, and that's the reason why you don't see any of our academic affiliations um, on the slide, and I'm not going to mention them either. Um, thank you. Uh, one last note, and I hope this goes without saying, that the Forum offers its full support to all striking academics, professional staff, and support staff involved in the current dispute. <laughs> so I'd like to welcome our speakers this evening, uh, Priya Gopal, Nasa Mia, and Kwame Anthony Appiah. Um, the discussion will be very informal, there'll be lots of points where you can jump in with questions and then we'll have some more time for questions at the end. Uh, so the, the topic we are discussing this evening is the philosophy of race. Perhaps, Anthony, we can start with you and perhaps you might tell us a little bit about what we're talking about when we talk about race. Well, we're talking about something that we made up. Uh, and uh, when I say we, uh, it was made up in different ways in different places, different times. Uh, the, the sort of strong form of racial thinking that is uh, present in the United Kingdom today has its own sp specific history. Um, my own view is that it's very much connected with two things. First of all, the slave trade and the, the, the need to find rationalizations for the treatment of black people in the slave trade. Uh, and second, um, something completely different, which is the rise of uh, a certain kind of biological thinking in the 19th century, which turned a category that was social and imaginatively perhaps natural into uh, a, a, a supposedly scientific category uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and then, the, so what was the idea? Well, the idea was that you could divide the world into a small number of groups and each member each group had some uh, hereditary things about it that were handed on from parental members of the group to the descendant members of the group. Um, and that those things, and I think this is a key part of what developed in the late 19th century in, in, in Britain uh, and in the North Atlantic world more generally, uh, that that didn't just affect your skin and your hair and the shape of your nose and how big your lips were and whether your teeth were sharp or not, but it affected poetry and culture and philosophy and religion, that there was a deep, this, this was a deep thing. Um, W.B. Du Bois said that it was physical for sure, but more deeply it was psychical and spiritual, and this is an African-American speaking in the late 19th century. So I think that's, that's sort of, now, we, we've inherited something slightly different from that. The biologists aren't on the side of this anymore, for one thing. But we still have, I think, we live with a legacy of that kind of thinking. And just to make one final point, Things like this, 
descent-based characterizations of people are not the unique prerogative of the North Atlantic. People do this all over, all over the world, and so there's a family resemblance between the ways in which people think about race, what we call race now in lots of places. So how do we move from thinking, if you're saying that the, the history of this, this uh, category is, is um, something we used to think about biologically, but that does no longer holds, is the category of race useful in other senses? Is it something that we've repurposed in fruitful ways? Um, I don't think I should be, yeah. uh, I should be the only person, because yeah, okay. uh, that seems to be a question that we, 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 we all are going to have views about. Well, I mean, as Anthony suggests, it uh, was seen as a biological category, but it's actually in most ways historical. Um, and the fact that something is historical and not biological doesn't mean it's not real. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't have an operative force, uh, you know, whether we like it or not. And although a lot of people talk about being colorblind or not seeing race, the fact is that we all have some kind of racial identity within which we are seen and within which we work. So in a sense, it's not up to us, uh, you know, whether we accept race or not. Race takes us. Um, so yes, I mean, repurposing is one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that thinking about race, about our own racializing and the way in which we racialize other people is very important to self-understanding, to thinking about how we became who we are and how uh, we think about ourselves in relation to other people. That doesn't mean race is an essence. It doesn't mean it's an absolute unmoving truth, but it does have a very important operative force in society, and we have to understand the ways in which it works before we can get to a point uh, that some people like to call post-racial, uh, you know, so if, or even to get to a point of equality, you actually have to think about what race is and how it operates in your life and in everyday life. So we should think of it as a kind of imposed identity? I mean, we can think of it in terms of external attribution, but I think that would undermine how people have responded to it and created forms of agency in terms of rejecting certain attributions of race. I mean, the category of black was a, a pejorative term until it was retaken by African-Americans and turned from a negative into a positive. Yeah, you know, black and I'm proud. I mean, the prevailing term, I think, was coloured up until the 1960s. Um, but, I mean, there's a great history. There is, I mean, of course, from, great history. You know, my favourite term of the 19th century was Afro-Saxon. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard them play. Um, so I suppose there's something about the agency and the ways in which race as a means of resisting forms of attribution can be a vehicle for self-empowerment, and I certainly wouldn't want to overlook that, and I think that's sometimes one thing that anti-racists um, don't properly understand. You know, they, they fall around this semantic idea of race and think, well, if we do away with a term, surely we'll do away with a problem. And of course, all they do is exacerbate it because they end up ignoring it. I suppose I share, I certainly share everything that's been said so far. One issue which always strikes me is in this shift, in this shift from race as lineage, which may or may not be relatively banal to a much more organized, concrete taxonomy um, with what we call scientific racism. I'm always struck by the fact that 
in the contemporary racialization of some groups, there, there's a certain repository which is drawn upon, and I work a lot on Muslims and Islamophobia, and I often find that in the rhetoric on Muslims, there's a continuity with things that have been said before, which is prior to the scientific racism changing of race. Now, I'm not suggesting there's direct linear one-to-one continuity, but there are interesting antecedents, which then suggests that, well, you know, race has this historically powerful recurring saliency and purchase, and if we want to understand some of the bigger things around who we are, whether as nations uh, or or something else, then, you know, we need to dip into a prior history of race, perhaps, too. I mean, I do think that uh, it is important. I mean, when you say... I think the particular way of thinking about race that sort of crystallized in the mid-18th century is just one way. But, but as you say, uh, ideas of peoplehood are antique. Uh, the, 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 the earliest texts we have talk about kinds of people, uh, and we know that they imagined them as, um, as it were, inheriting their, their membership from their parents, so they, they thought of it as sort of lineage-based, as descent-based. Um, and and also, as I would say, in some sense, essentialist. What changes in the early 19th century is that the essence comes to be biological. But, but um, if you think about the ways in which Jews were talked about in the uh, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries in, in Spain, say, mm-hmm. there, uh, it's not biology. The, the word biology was invented in um, 1800. But it's... Um, it's nevertheless the idea that, uh, well, this person who is Jewish can convert, can become one of the conversos, but there's still really something in there, some essence. Intrinsic. Some intrinsic. Uh, they used the language of blood, actually. Um, so that there's some blood, there's some Jewish blood. And that means that if your deal with your Jewish, and in that case Muslim populations, uh, is, well, you can stick around as long as you become Christian. If you then have a story according to which you can't become Christian then there's no place for you. And as you know, in 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain. So I think that's another place where, where the, the story that develops in the 18th century has sort of looks back to. But it looks back to, it looks back to you know, ideas about Philistines and Assyrians and, and uh, Achaeans and all that other stuff. So, 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 and I, but the key thing is that human beings. So, so there's a sort of psychological part of the story, I think, which is that we are very prone to essentialize groups. We're very prone to think that, well, we can distinguish these people from these people. So there must be some deep thing inside these people that's different from some deep thing inside these people that explains why we can tell them apart. And that deep thing is then going to lead us to feel that we should treat these people differently from these people, especially if one of these people is us. Uh, and, and, the, uh, and so the idea that we are held together by some, um, some essence of usness, mm-hmm. and they are held together by some essence of themness, I think that's a very widespread pattern, um, and it's, it's to do with the deep feature of our psychologies, I think. I, I, I'm, I'm interested in the way in which race becomes used to service a kind of political economy, and 1492 is really quite important there, not only because of what happens in Europe and the Reconquista, but also, of course, in the, the Christian colonization or Catholic colonization of, of the North Americas and the, and the native peoples there. Um, there is a continuing question over the extent to which race serves that function. I think it does. <laughs> you mean then or now? Now. Oh, I see. Um, I think that one of the ways in which we can understand contemporary um, 
forms of racialization is very much driven by questions of political economy, not solely, not entirely. I don't think that helps us to understand or explain Islamophobia, but I think it helps us to, un to understand and explain forms of the racialization of, say, you know, white poles. Well, you know, actually, political economy was never not there. Um, and if you think about the ways in which uh, you talked about historical categorizations emerging from slavery and then continuing into the empire, labor was a very big part of that. I mean, and, and you, I think you touched on that, the idea that, so for instance, um, Thomas Carlyle writes a, a famous attack on black people, quashy as lazy, as sitting outside their huts, grinning and eating pumpkins with the juice running down their face. Why are black people in the mid to late 19th century seen as lazy? In part because they're resisting. Mm -hmm. And they're resisting political economy. They are resisting being transformed from slaves into so-called free wage laborers. They don't want to become laborers for hire on farms in Jamaica or in Trinidad. They want to look after their own piece of land and be self-sustaining. So what you get in the 19th century are these really angry tirades in the Times of London and, and similar you know, British newspapers about how lazy blacks are and how, in fact, they need to be put to work because if you don't put them to work, all they're going to do is sit outside their hut and eat pumpkins because they have no need to work. And so here you see the refusal to be wage laborers and many black freed blacks and their descendants absolutely refused to work for their former masters in their plantations. And here you can see how blackness becomes connected to laziness because you have a form of resistance that says, no, we're not going to become part of the wage economy of plantation labor because we know what it's like to work on a plantation and it wasn't fun and the pitiful wages you're offering are not worth the economic slavery that that will entail. I mean, you're, the question of stereotypes is coming up here and, and the way that stereotypical characterizations have um, originated. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that and the relationship between our, um, our understanding of race and the way that leads into kind of racist stereotypes. Well, I just touched on it, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly it's an important part of the story, and it's one of the ways in which, as a result of that, um, pictures develop of kinds of people. And, uh, and they may have, in, have their origins in specific moments, in the, in, say, in the political economy, but they kind of live on uh, after the political economy has changed. So blacks get identified as... Um, as, as lazy because they won't work in the system that's trying to be imposed on them after emancipation. Uh, but then the idea that blacks are slavery, uh, blacks are um, uh, lazy, goes into in, into British colonial discourse yes. uh, where it's serving a different function, uh, uh, and where what's being resisted is not just um, not just a labor regime, but at the total imposition of a colonial yeah. system and, and a system of command and so on. So, um, but so these, these stereotypes are very powerful, I think. Uh, and again, they're so, I mean, all forms of identity yeah. have stereotypes associated with them. And um, the, the, the key thing, I think, to see is that um, 
They're, um, uh, well, what's striking about them is that even if there's some truth in them, they're almost always way less true than would be necessary to justify continuing yeah. using them. Uh, and often they're just totally bogus. I mean, so, um, uh, uh, um, if one tries to think about, well, so uh, Jews are stereotyped as dishonest, but if you're involved as Jews were perforce because they weren't allowed to own land in, in banking and finance on a, on a small scale yeah. as well as a large scale, you can't be dishonest, right? It's the only asset you've got. So actually that's not just you know, as we're a little bit misleading, it's about as misleading as you could possibly be in that particular case because, um, because the association of... Um, so there are just lots of examples like that, I think, where um, you're saying that blacks are lazy when you've just ended a labor system yes. in which blacks were yes. working day and night and producing yeah. the material that on which at that point... And they were saying up. that. I mean, yes. you know, if you look at testimony from former slaves, they're saying we work... Yes. like mad and yet we get neither money yes. nor appreciation despite the fact that our labor is being extracted and there are some really eloquent mm -hmm. you know speeches and testimonies and and legal documents which speak of this awareness of being racialized because of the way in which your labor is extracted I mean, as a social scientist, my students don't get much exposure to literature, um, but uh, the literature that I do share with them on this topic it, it comes from Elizabethan England. It's the works of Shakespeare, and students get to learn about the portrayal of Othello and, and Shylock, who, by contemporary standards, are replete with redeeming qualities. They're very polysemic. You know, nonetheless, they are a certain kind of racialized affectation of characters of their time. You know, Jews hadn't been readmitted to Britain by the time, uh, during the time Shakespeare was writing uh, The Merchant of Venice. Yet he had this prior notion of Jewry in his head which informed this kind of tragic figure of, of Shylock. And of course, you know, there was a moral panic during the time that Shakespeare was writing Othello in London about the, the place of Ottomans. And indeed, Queen Elizabeth I even had a, an edict uh, suggesting they should be all expelled. So, so these, these stereotypes are ingrained in our culture, in our literature, in the common stories that we define as telling something meaningful about who we are, you know, as Brits, quote-unquote, you know. Shakespeare always pops up in top ten, um, <laughs> top ten surveys of things that make you proud about Britain, you know. They always throw something like that in. And, of course, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's one, of those, one of those narratives about who we are that is deeply racialised uh, in ways that perhaps we don't always appreciate. Yeah, I think one of the one of the odd things about the Merchant of Venice is that the uh, the only uh, racialized kind of um, money lending in London in Elizabethan times, paradoxically, was by Italian Catholics, the Lombard the bankers from Lombardy, so that Shakespeare's audience knew that the group from which Antonio comes was actually engaging in money lending down the street, while in the play, as a good Christian, he represents himself as someone who will lend money but only, only without, um, without interest. So there's, a, there's lots of paradoxes, I think, about... Uh, I mean, as always with Shakespeare, yeah. Yeah. What's, what's really going on is, is, I think, quite complicated. But the fact that he can draw on stereotypes of Jews in a country without Jews... Yeah. 
is the point. Yeah. Uh, so these stereotypes, I mean, there, and there aren't many. Uh, most um, most Elizabethan English people haven't seen haven't seen a, a, a Moor. They have not seen a, a safe. Certainly haven't seen a Moorish general uh, uh, like Othello. So ideas about who he is are nevertheless uh, deeply available in the culture, and ideas, stereotypes about. Um, and already we have, in the case of Othello, uh, the association of, uh, of black people with um, sexual appetite, yeah. the, the lascivious, yeah. the, uh, Othello has lascivious lips, <laughs> uh, thick lips, which are associated with um, lasciviousness and so on. And again, this is in a country where there's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no representation. It, it, this, isn't a, this isn't a stereotype of an actually existing significant population of people. I don't mean there were no, no yeah, black people yeah. in England. But so the stereotypes are very, very powerful, and they do their work uh, even if there's hardly anybody empirically to represent the category that they're. I want to muddy that terrain just a little bit, though, because Elizabeth I expels Blackamoors from the kingdom. So there are yes. Blackamoors in yeah. Elizabethan England. They are not racialized and then re-racialized as she expels them as foreigners. I think, that, and you touched on this, and it's very important. Shakespeare, on the one hand, is drawing on stereotypes and playing with them. But no society has a very static view of everything. People in any society disagree with each other. They also challenge stereotypes. So in Othello, in The Merchant of Venice, yeah. Yeah. in The Tempest, we also get a challenging of racial discourse. We also get stereotypes. I mean, famously and very obviously, hath not a Jew eyes too, right? I mean, the idea, you also get speaking, self-representing yeah. characters who challenge dominant stereotypes. Now, Caliban in The Tempest is a monster, but he's also someone who remains an icon for some, uh, as a person who resisted colonialism, who said, you have taught me your language so that I might curse with it, right? So he's, he represents those people who took ideas from Britain or from Europe and turned them against Britain and Europe and colonialism. So I think it's important to think about paradoxes and ambiguities and the fact that with every stereotype, there is also a pointing towards a counter stereotype and a, and a, and a complication of no. the picture. No, no, I agree with that. It's really important what you say is really important. And I think it's, it's, um, it's important also because it suggests a way we can draw on history, which is uh, not just to focus on, as it were, the racist stereotypes and the bad moments, but to notice that we, we have traditions to draw on yeah. that, that are ways of fighting back against those uh, stereotypes so that we want both to acknowledge that um, our, you know, our intellectual ancestors had failings, but also to notice that uh, they made arguments that were, they made good arguments about these things in in um, mm. in the Jew of Malta. Uh, Mal has a character has the Barabbas, the the Jew, say uh, um, he makes the best argument against holding people responsible for their group that you could make. He says, "But say the tribe that I descended of were all in general cast away for sin, shall I be tried by their transgression?" He's saying. You're using your stereotype, you're, you're, you're treating me as the Jew, but shouldn't you look at me? Shouldn't you decide whether I did any of those things? Should I be held responsible for, for what they've done? And, you know, so that argument is, yeah. is, is in play, even in a play that's, you know, where Barabbas is not Absolutely. the most super attractive character in the history of uh, drama. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important because we d it means that we, we have 
within our traditions resources to draw on, we don't have to reinvent uh, all the arguments. Uh, many of the arguments are made um, all along. Um, I like to remind people that it's true that, that Aristotle endorsed slavery for people that he thought were natural slaves, but arguments against slavery were already in play in his, in his culture. He wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't, as it were, a, a, a monologue. There, were, there, was, there was a polylogue about these things. So I think it's, we can draw on different pictures uh, from, from the bad ones, even if they're the dominant ones at certain points. I think another thing you said is really important is that, is that this is a shifting thing, so that um, the, the, the dominant stereotypes shift yes. uh, very much. I mean, we were talking earlier about this, but uh, that's very strikingly true of the Irish, mm. right, who are essentially racialized as un-English, un barely European, as it were. Savages. Savages. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, well, in North America, and in, in, well into the 19th century yes. and into the early 20th century, um, and, uh, and now that's not part of the dominant uh, picture of the Irish in, um, in North America. And I think that's illustrated by a, by a whole series of typically white categories. I mean, the phrase, Trump's phrase about, appalling phrase about shithole countries reminded me of the phrase of the US statesman when migration from Europe changed from north to south and in the early, 19, early 20th century people were coming from Sicily and from Italy. What was the phrase? Europe is vomiting. Um, so, you know, so, so white categories, interestingly, have been subject to these forms of racialization in the past, but in ways in which they have overcome to some extent. Yeah. You know, um, the Irish case is fascinating. You know, they were, I mean, there was a kind of a, there was a, an in, uh, a di almost a dialectical relationship to some extent between blackness and Irishness for a moment. Yeah. You know, the reference to Irish, uh, uh, a smoked N-words and, uh, and so on. Um, but... There's a certain currency in whiteness, isn't there, that people of colour don't have. You can pass for one of the mainstream. You're surveyed in a different way, even though you may take pride in your Italian history or your Irish history or your kind of Northern European history. As an American, you know, you are in. Uh, you are in. Well, now. You are now. In now. You are in. Yeah, yes. precisely. Yeah, yeah. In ways in which over the same, over the same time period... Yeah people of colour aren't in, or they're still marked out as visibly different, or, or you know, they have to fight to be part of an American story uh, in a way in which I don't see, I don't see white um, children of M.A. groups fighting. Right, and that's, I mean, I still think that we see this in, in some of the support for the current president of the United States, uh, whom I will not name. Um, uh, uh, there is a kind of sense that, in fact, there's a straightforward rhetoric of a white nation and a white Christian nation and so on, which is um, not endorsed um, in the mainstream, but very much present, uh, nevertheless, uh, in, in the background and has been there to some extent in, in waves up and down uh, all along. Um, and I think, you know, the dominant... I think, I, I think it's true that the dominant... I mean, um, <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the Immigration and Nationalization Service of the United States has just taken out of its uh, webpage its description of the United States as a nation of immigrants, yeah. um, and presumably under direction from somebody appointed by the current president. Um, but that's not going to work, because, uh, at least not in the short run, because most Americans continue to think of the United States as a nation of immigrants, including in that understanding uh, non-white immigrants, understanding that immigration brings people from everywhere, that, as it were, the world 
the world has come. That's different, I think, from a, from a difficulty that you have in Europe, which is that Europe is, continues to be imagined as white, in, so that there are lots of anti-racist, non-racist, decent Europeans who are perfectly happy to have um, uh, non-white people around, but they think of them as kind of guests or people that they're being nice to, or that they're not really as we're auto automatically entitled to be here. Um, and that's even true uh, when when they have ancestors who've been here because they have because they have uh, white ancestors as well. They have ancestors who've been here just as long as you know anybody can trace can trace uh, white ancestors. I, I once gave a talk at the Aristotelian Society about the concept of race, and a very nice middle class uh, lady at the back kept puzzling about why I had referred to myself at one point as English, and I said, well. My mother was English, and uh, I can tell you where her ancestors were in England back to the 12th century. And she said, yeah, yeah, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you get this all the time. Yeah. So, you get that all the time. Yeah. so I think uh, you, you, you can't, uh, that, that's a difficulty because, because the soil is imagined as it were, white people are imagined as it were, having come, they're, they're autochthonous, they come out of the soil here. Yeah. The way the way uh, we Asantes, my sisters are in the yeah. front row. Um, we Asantes think of ourselves as having come out of the ground in in Asante, where where we grew up, and and so everybody else. We're nice to other people. We like having other people around, but they have to understand that we're the people of the soil. We're the people who came out of the ground here. And I think that uh, in the United States, because the people who came out of the ground here, they, who, the only people who have a plausible claim to that are are American Indians. Uh, what people want to call Native Americans now, but that seems to me not helpful since many of them call themselves Indians. Um, uh, and uh, so you, that doesn't work so well. But in Europe, you can do that. You can sort of say, well, we're nice to you and so on, and you're welcome here, but you, we came out of, we and our ancestors came out of the ground here. And of course, that ignores the fact, among other things, that many of the ancestors of contemporary white people who are racialized as white in the United Kingdom came from. Um, you know the Norse, Norse world, or from, uh, or they were Huguenots, or they were uh, uh, um, uh, Spaniards. I mean, they uh, Italians. They came from all over the place, Poles. Um, and uh, but the the uh, the fact that uh, our particular racial categories put so much pressure on appearance means that if you if you don't look non-white, uh, you can sort of pass into the into the the norm in a way that's very hard if you don't. That's just a contingent feature of the particular form of racial thinking that we have. You can have forms of racial thinking which are not so heavily tied to physical appearance. And for those, questions of passing, I think, become, can become extremely urgent and interesting, which is why I think the Spaniards were so obsessed with the conversos, because they couldn't actually tell them apart. They couldn't actually tell who had Jewish ancestry. Uh, whereas they thought they could tell who, could, who had African ancestry. You remember the controversy about Cheddar Man? Uh, uh, remember yes. you know, Cheddar Man it was described as black in complexion. Uh, British, the people who considered themselves indigenous yes. British were meaning white, uh, were not happy um, because that then raised the question of whether there was in fact a relationship between skin color and so-called indigeneity or, or coming from the ground? Who came from the ground in any place? How do you answer this question? 
who came from the ground. And in America, I think it's interesting that because of the prior claim of American Indians to the land, the discourse is not so much um, land as blood. So blood has now come back, the white race, the white race is imperiled, the white race will become a minority. And it's gone back to being biological with a, with a vehemence um, that, that is really, again, about trying to find a way to uh, lay defensive claim to an identity. I enjoyed the uh, possible explanation for the Cheddar Man, uh, yeah. including that he, he may have been here on holiday. I mean, I, 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 I certainly recognise the description you make of Europe, Anthony, um, but I put back to you that there's a, there's a certain ranking that goes on in North America right now, surely, in terms of declaring yourself a seventh-generation American. Seventh-generation American, you know. Um, I have a claim on this. You know, I'm not, I'm not yeah. a newcomer. There's... People do that. Though, again, this is, I mean, this is one of those places where I think it's useful to draw people's attention to what the metaphor requires. I mean, uh, if the thought is all my ancestors back for seven generations are, we're all here, the answer is nope. There's hardly anybody in the United States uh, who's racialized as white, who has no uh, ancestors who came to the United States uh, after, the, uh, after the mid 19th century. So, uh, and if the claim is, well, I can trace it back through men, well, then the question is, why should we care about tracing things back through men? Um, so I think you can, you, you can sort of, when people start playing those games, I think you can draw attention to, the, to their presuppositions and ask them whether they really want to endorse the presuppositions, um, but sometimes they do, and um, there's you know, not much you can do with those people except disagree with them. <laughs> well, you have a philosopher's, uh, philosopher's capacity to appeal to logic and reason in the way in which yes. social scientists tend to throw their arms up, um, myself included. And I suppose the other thing I would say about the UK is that you only get to this, you only get to this frame of of who is and who isn't British based upon ancestry if you forget about the empire, you know, mm. and the traffic mm. across that mm. for many centuries. Mm. Um, what Britain was, in large part, was an imperial entity. Mm. And suddenly we're a state, suddenly we're a nation state. That's, mm. a, that's a relatively mm. small period within yeah. the story of Britishness mm. and Britain. I'm from Scotland, you know, a nation which has... Uh, uh, conveniently forgotten its role in empire, uh, looking down as it does at those nasty English who are mean to immigrants and not mm -hmm. nice like mm -hmm. us. Um, you know, they can only do that by, by uncoupling themselves from this imperial project, which is in, you know, which is in our parents' lifespan. Mm -hmm. I mean, having said that, I think we also have to think about the ways in which Britishness, and you see this very clearly with Brexit, is very dominated by Englishness. Mm. So yes, of course, the Scots and the Welsh and, and <laughs> to some extent, uh, some Irish had a role to play in empire, although yeah. the Irish were also colonized. But I think that, that you know, Brexit, definition of Britain and who voted for Brexit, it turns out to be a heavy English vote. Mm. And so we also had to think about the ways in which Britain is constituted by empire on the one hand, but also, in a disproportionate way by an empire which saw itself as English in values. I mean, you have Lord Macaulay talking about, you know, creating people who are English in every way but blood and yeah. color. So yes, it was a British imperial project, but British, the British empire was also 
heavily overrun by Englishness, and that has come back with a vengeance. I, I, I think to talk about that. I think, I think, yeah, I think we need to talk about the second yeah. point, and I agree with it. Your first point, I, you know, the phrase uh, "the English own the British Empire, but the Scots run it." Yeah, uh, it's, I do, very, yeah. it's very true. About yeah. a third of the elite civil yeah. servant grade. You Lord of the, Macaulay. I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He saw himself as English. Yes, he did. <laughs> of the East India Trade, yes, East yeah. India Trading Company were Scots. When you think about the population size yeah. at the time, it tells you something about the role that Scottish sure. civil servants wanted to yeah. play in this entity. Sure. Sure. Well, and the Jute in Dundee. I of mean, course. you know, yeah. we have very material connections yeah. uh, to the empire. But, yeah. Yeah, I think the. Um, I mean, it's very hard to. Exp- so one thing I've never been able to explain to anybody in America is why um, the use of the word British to refer to everybody in England is not necessarily, and I mean England, is not necessarily helpful in understanding how people are thinking about themselves. So I do, so for example, my mother was not British, as far as I could tell. My mother was English. (laughs) And, And she came from the west of England. And her her sort of literary references and her sense of what landscape is and so on, these were all tied up with English poets, I mean, maybe as far north as the Lake District, but still. Um, and so, um, and, and, but whereas British is this category, it's essentially a category produced for the empire uh, and partly out of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the conflict with the French over, over imperial stuff. Um, and it's, um, it's, so it's not very old, the idea. I mean, there's, there's the United Kingdom, but that's, that's the union of some crowns. Uh, uh, that's not very old yeah, that's either. That's not very old <laughs> so. either. So I think, uh, and I think one reason why it's hard to explain Englishness is because part of Englishness is a resistance to theories about things like Englishness. So, so the English don't like theories about Englishness because they think it's un-English to care about such stuff. Um, so w- what you should do is sing with Flanders and Swan, the English, the English, the English are best, I wouldn't give tuppence for all of the rest, but, uh, but you shouldn't have a theory of Englishness. And this, this distinguishes England uh, as, as a sort of untheoretical idea from Britain, which I think is a legal and juridical and theoretical idea, and m- very distinctively from France, where, where France understands itself as an idea, not, not as something that therefore has to be thought about and theorized, and you have to teach people, and it can be... Uh, now, that doesn't mean there isn't a racial dimension in the French self-understanding. I think there is, though they debated it. I mean, they, they thought about whether, during the revolution, they thought about whether, um, uh, whether they were going to have a kind of uh, a, a notion of what France was that was defined by purely by ancestry, or whether they were going to have a notion of France uh, defined by commitment to the ideas of the Republic and the Revolution. And uh, and nobody won that. I mean, it went back and forth. Uh, But still, there's a long tradition in France of thinking of French identity as something that can be theorized and therefore transferred, right? Because it's a matter of having the right beliefs and and so on. So um, Mm. in in the mid-20th century, or mid to late 20th century, one of the great, greatest French poets, in the view of people who study French poetry in France, was Leopold Sédar Senghor, the president of Senegal. Why? Because he spoke beautiful French, because he was 
engaged in the things that uh, mattered to the French because he believed in the Republic and the Revolution and, and knew about Asterix and all that um, and knew about uh, Moliere and Racine and, and the literature that mattered. Um, so he could be, a, as he was, a member of the Académie Française, a foreign, foreign head of state could be a member of the Académie Française because he was committed to a certain picture of Frenchness. I don't think you could do that in England because you can't, <laughs> There's no, there's no analogous thing that you could, as it were, grab onto and say, OK, I've got that, so now you have to, um, you have to count me in. It's there a little bit around imperial Englishness and the idea of creating people who could be English. You know, yes. Uh, and, 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 you know, English literature, my discipline, develops as a colonial enterprise. It, it exists in India before it exists in England properly. It's used to train civil service administrators on the one hand to be able to go off into the colonies and communicate English values which were then mapped on to British values. It was also used and this is one reason in a way that I'm, I'm in this room uh, talking is it was used to create a native elite class who Lord Macaulay described as English in every way but blood and color and again English literature which is the discipline I teach uh, was used to as the vehicle for culturally turning, a kind of a cultural eugenics, turning people into people who had uh, so-called English values and could communicate them and help govern. So he wanted a class of interpreters between us and the millions whom we govern, and he wanted a kind of brown English class, and it was actually in many ways a very, very successful project of cultural eugenics, and it's, it's why, uh, you know, uh, it, it shapes India's relationship with Britain to this day. Explains why there are so many Indian Booker Prize winners. Yeah, well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I suppose I'd want to push at the extent to which um, we're talking about the identity of particular racial projects, in this case, nation-states, and 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 people's national identities. And one of the things I find with your example of France is that um, the, the French state is stuck in terms of its self-identity. It's stuck in a 1958 version of what it is, whereas actually when you survey French people, they, actually, they have quite hybrid plural identities of what being French is, the racial character to it, but there's a fluidity in a way in which the state struggles with. And I would say that it's also true of Britain, um, though with the exception that the competition within self-definition of national identity in the UK is that Britishness is currently sustained by black and ethnic minorities in England and Protestants in Northern Ireland. When you look at the survey data, census data, they're the people who will most strongly self-identify with that national identity. In Wales, they'll say, I'm Welsh first. In Scotland, they'll say, I'm Scottish first. And the English in England will say, I'm English. So you have this paradox where where, you know, British national identity has to some extent been remade precisely at the point in which um, the majorities are trying to uncouple themselves from this imperial or post-imperial activity. I wonder whether now might be a good moment to invite some questions from the audience. Sure. Hey. Um, I wonder whether... Uh, whether, whether we want to aspire to a post-racial world. Because um, it strikes me that what is, lies behind all, these all the discussions so far is, 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 is an individual desire to subscribe to 
an identity. And I wonder whether, like, whether perhaps that we, we, we should accept or, or, or whether there's an alternative that we, that we view ourselves rather as, as an evolving construct moment to moment and, and accept rather that we have like that we have no continuous sense of identity, that we can just look back at the accumulation of, I don't know, our choices and, and just accept that, that I am, I don't know, either, you know, uh, uh, along, you know, Cartesian lines, that like, that, that there is something that is sufficient to who I am that doesn't require, um, Subscribing to like a group creation. Thanks. Should we take another one and give you a bit more thinking time? I think there's one at the back there. Right. Thanks so much. Um, my name is Jacinta, I'm PhD, um, not in any sort of related area, but fairly similar. Um, the question I wanted to ask, really, or, or a point I wanted to raise was, is it possible to sort of take this a little bit uh, back? And I just wanted to hear your comments on the whole concept of race, whether you think there may be some sort of association with, uh, for instance, the fact that black people or people, if you like, from Africa were kind of have been associated to be homo, sapi homo sapiens. There was homo sapiens, they still are homo sapiens, and they came from Africa and they, for instance, made distinct, I mean, sort of made extinct the Neanderthals within the northern hemisphere or, or the um, European kind of regions. That is the most recent finding according to evidence. And I just wondered what you might think in terms of the concept of race and how it's often been perceived and been <laughs> written about and conceptualized within the Western Hemisphere, whether it has anything to do with the fact that Homo sapiens ha actually do dominate the entire planet. and They have made certain races extinct. Uh, extinct. Thank you. And we'll take just one more. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning, there was talk about essential to do with spiritual and such like, but leaving that out and also in relation to what you said about cultural eugenics, are there different philosophical worldviews of different parts of the world? I find the Western philosophical tradition incredibly stuck down a tunnel. I can't wait for it to start making the attempt to communicate with the traditions of other continents, whether there is an actual written philosophical tradition or whether there is a worldview put in some formal form. It's, uh, I don't know if it does go on, but... Uh, not, there are problems with language and there seems to be quite a widespread philosophical view of language that we're kind of stuck inside. 
our language and I think we are very, I was reading a linguist recently who talked about us being very strongly determined by our language but not absolutely stuck within it. We're not totally... Thank you. And, uh, oh, I wonder what you could say about that and I'm sorry but I'm going to have to say uh, with regard to uh, I think we need to this belonging in England I, also, I find I thought you were I find the problem with most theory about race coming from America and assuming England to be exactly identical but you didn't and uh, I'm sorry but we do have lots of questions and not that much yeah, time. I'm sorry I'm going to say this. I have brought up two daughters, one white, one mixed race, as a single parent at the bottom end of society. Uh, my mixed race daughter is picked up by the police but it's my white daughter who has been made unwelcome here who was told that she had absolutely no right, her and her young son, to housing in England. And with long leave... Okay, you have, I, think you've, I think you have made your point. Uh, uh, Thank you. man who identified as British Asian, I would think of him as English because he was born in England, said he thought England was a classist country and that he thought classism was a variety of racism, which I find quite an interesting... Thank you. Okay, three very diverse questions. I don't know what you want to pick up on first. Maybe you should take them in order. <laughs> I mean, um, I don't know if I should be the first person to answer the first question. Since that's my nephew. <laughs> so maybe... I mean, I'm, look, I mean... Um, we shouldn't get trapped in our identities, is the point. Uh, but, but, it, but on the other hand, I don't think it's up to us alone what happens with us. I mean, we don't have, we don't have full control over. So on the one hand, you want to sort of, you want to make your own choices to the extent that you can. On the other hand, they have to be realistic about what, you know, what the world is going to do with you. And, um, and I think it's, it's certainly, uh, and part of that is recognizing that while there are patterns to how people interact on the basis of race, it's also true that in particular relationships and contexts, that is, you know, you, you'll, you'll get things wrong if you, if you assume that you're going to be uh, racialized by everybody you meet in, in the same way. And it's kind of good, I think, to think to yourself, uh, um, you know, not to set out on the assumption that you're just going to be uh, racialized in any particular way. I think that's that is a. But you have to accept the point that the lady just made that, that uh, you're more likely to be. It's just a fact about the, the way the North Atlantic world is organized. And here, the United States and the United Kingdom are similar. Uh, that, that you're more likely to be stopped by the cops if you're black than not. Just, just a fact. Well, I, you know, in a sense, of course, a post-racial world is something one might aspire to. But equally. I think declaring ourselves a post-racial world when we are no such thing is not helpful uh, because you may walk away from race. Race probably won't walk away, as we know, from you. Um, so I think we have to 
understand that, of course, there are no biological essences, there are no essences, there are no spiritual essences of race either or any other essence, but it is a history that we are, we are all creatures of history. We have descended biologically from people, but we have also descended historically from people. And those histories leave a very deep impact on us as well as on society. And we can't wish it away. And I know you're not suggesting that. I'm just saying you can't say, well, we'll just be post-racial. There are people who are claiming that, which is why I'm raising the issue that, oh, well, you know, nobody... Are. Lots of people will say, I don't see race, so you shouldn't talk about race. And the point is, well, you know, you th A, you think you don't see race. B, race sees you and race sees me. And I think we have to deal with those realities before we can even start thinking about the post-racial. Yeah. No, I, I very much share that. I mean, I, what I find striking about the post-racial is not the empirical claim that we are less racist, that, that racial outcomes have a declining significance, the declining significance of race. That I don't, I, I don't find problematic because you can, you can respond to that quite easily with, with evidence and data. What, what I find intriguing about the post-racial argument is amongst those scholars who may once have talked about race as a, as a vehicle for collective empowerment, people like Paul Gilroy, you know, when he talks now about planetary humanism, that's a very interesting move on his part. He doesn't really want to talk about race in the same way. He want, he's kind of subsumed. Um, he's brought into a particular kind of, um, you know, he's, he's not being naive about this, but a particular kind of cosmopolitanism, which, which I don't know what that says about the investment of his labour in, in, in trying to understand and make race more visible. Um, so I'm not unsympathetic to him and his project, but I, I, I find it slightly... Slightly strange because I think you know race has in this Derridian way has this kind of deferred presence. You know, it's 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 always there. We may not name it as race, but it's always there. It's a feature of the landscape, and we can talk it talk about race without using racial language. Maybe that's what Bonina Silver meant when he said we have you know, racism without racists. You know, nobody's racist here except that racism thrives um, in these contexts, so nobody has responsibility for it. Um, so, so, I'm, so I'm very cautious about thinking about ways that, in which we get beyond race with, with, <coughs> in a way in which it doesn't give sufficient, um, um, sufficient um, uh, uh, status to its presence, I suppose. In a, in a, that, that, there's, there's kind of an answer in there somewhere towards your point. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with me. <laughs> And the next question was about uh, Africa. It was, partly about, it was about the connection between the, the fact that, our, that the remaining humans are all uh, descendants yeah. of, of African, yeah. uh, Africans. Um, it's not quite true, I think, that the Neanderthals disappeared because, it's, because uh, it's a thing, I gather that a significant proportion of especially European genomes in, among our species uh, is, in fact, identifiably... Uh, Neanderthals, so they weren't so much disappeared as incorporated. Mm. Uh, they, that is, they disappeared as a separate uh, lineage, but, but uh, they, didn't, they didn't all die out without uh, a progeny because some of their progeny became human. Um, I'm not sure... Um, I don't think that... I, I, I think that that stuff, that, that sort of information, is too new and too um, narrowly known for it 
to be plausible that it has a big influence on the way in which people think about uh, race in mm. the pre- is my guess. So, I mean, insofar as I have an answer to your question, I, I, think, I think it's probably not... It's a very interesting set of facts that, that, about how our species spread and so on. Um, but I'm not sure that it plays a huge role uh, in, in contemporary thinking about these things. One possibility, which, which is relevant, that derives from our evolutionary history, I think, is that, um, that some of these habits of mind, these essentializing habits of mind, may have been adaptive at an earlier point in human evolution when there was a lot of competition between small groups of humans and, and, and therefore intense capacity to quickly to form others, groups of self and other, and to hyper-identify with the self. I gather some people think that there's reason to suppose that that is built into us because at some stage in our evolution that was helpful. And it may be that some of the competition that it was helpful in was indeed competition with Neanderthals. But as I say, I don't think... Um, I don't think of that as something that's important in the, in the ideology of uh, contemporary racial thinking. Uh, one, uh, this is slightly moving away from your question. One useful thing, I think, to uh, talk about in relation to race is that races are not separate categories, and races blend into each other. We are all genetically related to each other. We are all genetically related to Africa. In, in that sense. And so this idea that you can have a pure whiteness uh, that is separate from blackness or uh, a Europeanness that is untouched by Africa, the, the borders that we create between cultures, civilizations, and races are human-created borders. Whereas biology, just like ideas, doesn't actually respect borders. So. One of the things I always say is that when we talk about so-called Western civilization or British values, we forget the extent to which Europe, the West, and I know you touched on this earlier when we talked, the West and Britain drew on ideas from other cultures. And you know, the, the so-called European Enlightenment was heavily dependent on ideas that came out of Africa and Asia. And so we need to also think about the ways in which borders between people or between ideas skew our thinking. And I think that's one useful thing you know, in relation to what you just said. I think something else which your question foregrounds is um, the issue of, of physiology, and I, I think you both touched on it slightly, which is the way in which we often return to race through a new discovery of, of something which is you know, embodied. You know, it may be the science of genetics, and uh, people get awfully excited about this until it confirms what we already knew in social theory. You know? uh, I always like uh, Richard Lewontin's statement that um, there are more differences in clusters of gene patterns between North and South Wales than there are between Manchester and Malawi. Um, but we won't call people in North and South Wales uh, different, different races. Um, yet yet we, we still seek it, don't we? I mean, epigenetics is another new kind of frontier in terms of the science of race. You know, what is the relationship between physiology and, and, uh, and environment, and how will these change according to different conditions for different ethnic groups? And I just think, come on, you know, haven't we been here before? My university, Edinburgh, I shouldn't mention oh. my university, forgive me, <laughs> forgive me, uh, a, univer- a university of a friend of mine, um, 
has the largest collection of um, of skulls, I think, anywhere in Europe as an activity of science. It's called the Skull Room. It was the home of phrenology in the Anatomical Museum, and I sometimes send my students there for an afternoon. Uh, they can either go there or they can go to the National Museum where they can see Tipu Sultan's sword, you know, with this wonderful picture of the person who took it. No, no history of, 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 of Scottish participation in Empire. Um, but, but they are shocked to think that we could try to discover the character, the personality, the, the, uh, the, the capacity of people from doing that on somebody's head, which is pretty much what phrenology was. Um, I find that sometimes we haven't necessarily learned the lessons of this, and we try to do that in different ways, but in more complex and elaborate ways that are equally fruitless. It's perhaps worth insisting that, that um, what, you know, because we're so drawn to these racialized ways of thinking, which I think derives from our sort of deep tendency to essentialism about any, any categorization that we develop, um, we, theoretically minded people, go to whatever is the, the high status uh, discourse in their society in order to rationalize them. So, before the rise of modern natural history and, and biology, you went, to, you went to theology and to biblical texts to talk about the origins of races, because that was the high-status discourse. And so, uh, you know, we were, the, the human race was divided between the, the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Shem, and the descendants of Japheth, um, roughly speaking, uh, uh, blacks, whites, and, and Semites. Um, for a, for a period, because that was the that was the sort of high status. Uh, when when biology through the 19th century, the natural sciences rise in prestige, and in the early 20th century, uh, when the combination of Darwin and Jean and, and um, Mendel turns the, turn the life sciences into theoretical activities, as opposed to just people wandering around <laughs> collecting information about this organism and that, um, people try very hard to to give an account of this of these differences in in terms of uh, the, the then high-status science. And because genomics has sort of come back as, as a result of the, uh, the, the new capacity to, to map uh, individual genomes um, and, and the fact that we have the computational capacity to analyze them, uh, that's produced a whole new round of uh, high-prestige stuff which is meant to rationalize these things. And I mean, I, I'm sure interesting things will come out of that but they won't undermine the, the central point, which is that these categories are produced in social life for social reasons, and even if they happened to correspond roughly to some category that was for some reason biologically interesting, that wouldn't explain anything about them. Uh, that the, important thing, uh, the important things about them are historical and social, I think. Um, I'm pretty skeptical about what I've read so far of the work that's attempting to use the new genomics to reconstruct uh, racial categories. But, but um, you know, that's just, as it were, one man's opinion. But, uh, and I have to say that the best people working on this uh, tell me that um, one thing that's pretty clear is that we don't really yet have a very good understanding of the statistical structure of the human genome, so that any, it's premature to say anything very much about it, even though we now have lots of new data. Uh, but my point is that even if all that turns out to be interesting in some way, it won't be interesting, I think, in ways that are important for the topic that we're discussing. It won't turn it into a scientific yeah. um, question, I don't think. Um, you, I mean, you said many things, ma'am, but uh, 
one of them was about about class and classism, and I think that um, uh, we, we haven't talked much about the intersections between race and other things. We haven't talked much about race and gender. We haven't talked much about race and class. Uh, yes, uh, you know, anybody who's trying to make serious sense of um, the moral lives of our own society, or your society, the one you live in, the United Kingdom, the one I live in in the United States, uh, these days is going to have to think very deeply about um, class and, and to have theories that un help us to understand the connections between the many different dimensions of class, of which I will mention just four. I mean, clearly, one dimension of class has to do with uh, resources, access to money, to wealth and, and income. Another set of things has to do with connection, social capital, the capacity to mobilize uh, people to do things. And a, and a third has to do with cultural capital, which is well represented on the stage here. People who have lots of, uh, lots of training and uh, uh, the capacity to mobilize information. Uh, and then there, are, then there are sort of structures of uh, um, power and prestige that are, seem to be independent either of connections or of cultural capital. I don't know what the right name is for that. So all of these things need to be understood in order to think about how, uh, what's going on in our society. And I would say, in particular, that we need to think deeply about them because um, huge amounts of the unfairness in the world today, of the injustice in the world today, are connected with these things, these, these different ways in which people are uh, organized into hierarchies. Um, and final point about on this, um, uh, I think there's a discourse that's developed, it's the discourse of meritocracy, which muddles and confuses and gets our discussion of these things off in the wrong place because it, it pretends that the current distribution of um, unequal distribution of, of wealth and income is to be explained uh, increasingly by differences in the talent and effort of the people who have it. And that's just false. I mean, it's just false. Uh, we are, I would say, this country is probably less meritocratic in that sense than it was when I was, when I was a kid, though it wasn't very meritocratic then. Uh, and my country, the one of which I'm a citizen and where I live, has become uh, less of a country in which uh, talent and effort predicts <laughs> success and more of a country uh, in which parental, uh, social, cultural, and economic capital predicts success. It's, a, it's more class, in that sense, it's more of a class society than it was when I moved to it. And these problems are not under serious discussion in the public realm. I, lots of scholars talk about them, but I think that they're very serious problems. So, so I'm glad you raised the question of class. and, and um, the intersection between the issues I just raised and questions of race is very complicated. Just want to <clears throat> follow on from that. Um, I think it's absolutely important to look at the intersections. Uh, we've talked about race, class, gender, sexuality as separate things. They're not. But equally, I think we have to be careful about playing race versus class. Mm. Um, and that is a discourse that I am finding increasingly popular in Brexit Britain where class, when the word class is used, it's assumed to be white. Yeah. So when you say working classes, you think of the working classes as white. Actually, the large majority of people in, in many places are not necessarily white 
working classes. There are black working classes, there are Asian working classes, there are mixed race working classes. So I, I find that this race v class game in Britain troubling. And I also find the argument that people are punished for being white problematic. It's not as though, it's simply not true that if you're white and working class, you don't get housing because people who of color or mixed race are preferred. That is mythology. It is simply not true. It is not borne out by the stats, which I will leave my colleague here. No, 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 we're going to finish. My colleague here to address. But I think that we need to, we need to think more about the intersections yeah. and less about playing race v class. It's not a game that's going to benefit anybody. Yeah. I mean, I do. I, I am sympathetic to the view that for some white people, the, the kind of the capital that comes with whiteness seems quite meager relative to, to others. But we can control for class when we look at social outcomes, and statistically, we do that all the time. You know, it may shock you to learn that. If you are black in this country, you will on average learn earn 23% less if you have a degree than if you are white in this country and you have a degree. And that's including an analysis of class into that. You know, if you are from a British Pakistani, Bangladeshi, or indeed African Caribbean background, your chances are you may live in substandard accommodation. About 30% of those population groups live in substandard accommodation compared to about 8% for, for white groups. And that's controlling for the question of class. So there is a certain kind of what we may call ethnic penalty, I would call uh, a racial disadvantage that groups experience, which belies some of the claims or the myths that are, that are put forward that white people are left behind because black people are advancing. I, I think that's wholly false and empirically and untenable. Yeah. We've only got about 10 minutes left, so I think we've got time for a couple more questions. So. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for a great discussion. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how race operates in post-colonial societies and if um, how uh, like imperialism has affected race thinking and its... Um, um, yeah, affects race thinking currently in those societies. Um, and I'm thinking kind of about how, uh, for example, a lot of uh, colonial powers had a tiered system when thinking about um, the uh, d different colonies where there were some communities that were more civilized than others, or for example, how um, race relations exist within as well where like uh, how Gandhi was in South Africa, for example. So if you could speak a little bit about that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've got really two related questions, actually. So the first is about the term people of color, which, linking to that, I think I'm ambivalent about. So I think it's very often a useful unifier that can also erase differences that have been established and prejudices that exist between communities that aren't white. And so I want like, a slight discussion about how it's useful and what it means or what it loses when you use that term. And the second is about the, the nature of racism. So like, over Christmas, I had a big argument with my extended family about whether or not white people could be racist. So like what does it mean for somebody to be racist? What is racism? Like what, like what constitutes a racist action in terms of power structures and prejudice? It's just like a bit more fleshing out of both the nature of the term people of colour and racism as a kind of social institution and an individual like quality. Great, thank you. We'll take those two. Do you want to kick off on that? 
I was, I was rather hoping I was looking, looking towards you, Priya. You can't be looking towards me. look at Anthony. I mean, so just on the, on the question of, I mean, obviously, what, one thing that happened with the racial discourses that developed in, in uh, the North Atlantic is that they travelled <laughs> into the empire. Uh, so, uh, and there are many examples of this. Uh, I mean, uh, for example, one horrifying example, I think, is the way in which the, um, the, 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 the Hutu-Tutsi distinction in, in Rwanda and Burundi, which is essentially a confection of a bunch of Belgian anthropologists, um, turned into a racial distinction. Because if you actually, just, just, if you look without those lenses of the populations of these countries, they aren't divided between a bunch of uh, you know, tall people with long heads and a bunch of short people with round heads, which is sort of the stereotype of the, uh, uh, of the uh, Tutsi and the Hutu. And the, there are also other people in Rwanda and Burundi like the Twa. But, um, but th that, that led to a way of thinking about the distinction, which is present in the, in the, up, uh, in the lead up through the, the first large-scale um, ethnic conflicts in Rwanda and Burundi in the, in the 50s and 60s, right up through to the, to the genocide. So there's a perfect example of how a way of thinking that I think we can think of as profoundly rooted in European racial thinking went with the empire into, in this case, Africa, and led to horrendous results which you can't understand unless you, can, you understand them in connection with the history of racism. It's not just that a bunch of Africans decided to classify themselves as Hutus and Tutsis and decided to, to fight one another. That's absolutely not the story at all. Um, they, had, they had to have, a, uh, in the Belgian period, that they had to have ID cards that told you whether you were uh, Hutu or Tutsi, and so people had to decide which to be, most of them not having any idea beforehand that that's what they were, so they had to make decisions uh, on the basis of stereotypes, most of the stereotypes being Belgian stereotypes, not local ones. So I think there are many, so that's just one example, I think, of the sort of thing that happens when, um, when race goes, this particular notion of race, went global, and it, it has had profound effects. I think the ways in which, um, frankly, it's hard to make sense of uh, the current Burmese government's discussion of the Rohingya without thinking that they're using racial categories that are mm. certainly not traditional yeah. Burmese categories, mm -hmm. uh, and so on. So I think, yes, the bad things happen because of that. The Rohingya example is an interesting yeah. one because, yes, on the one hand, there is a, a transferring of categories and an anthropological thinking and kind of tribalizing and categorizing that is colonial. Equally, colonialism succeeded and rooted itself by collaboration with native elites and with native hierarchies wherever it went. And so in the Myanmar case, what you also have is uh, it, it feeds lethally into Buddhist nationalism. It feeds lethally into existing hierarchical divisions and struggles over land. I mean, we don't talk very much about how much the Rohingya struggle is about appropriating land from people who occupy the so-called Rohingya uh, uh, areas. Um, and I think that we need to, in Gandhi's case, yes, on the one hand, you can say Gandhi was clearly operating with colonial categories. He was, you know, he was in South Africa. He was working with the South African racial categories. But how lethally racial thinking intersected with caste thinking. 
And that's something that post-colonial Indians have yet yes. to reckon with because they're very happy to talk about race, but much less happy to talk about caste and much less happy to think about the ways in which the upper castes facilitated colonial racism. So I'd say, yes, we want to talk about colonial influences and the very deep-rooted uh, uh, ideas that uh, Anthony referred to, but we also need to look at its intersections with dangerous native hierarchies and exclusions. Yeah, that's, that's very well put, and I, I, I always struggle with the, the relationship between caste and race. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure when one began and one... When, when one began and the other one took over, if you see what I mean, and, and where those intersections were. And, but it's hard not to see that so much of it falls around whiteness. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, well, where it falls is the invisibility. You know, in the way that white, to be white and to be English is to be a norm, to be unmarked, to not have a race. Right? Nobody really talks about whiteness. You have a, you are, you are, you have. If you're black, Asian, minority, ethnic, then you have a race. But nobody on a day-to-day -day basis thinks about whiteness as a race. Similarly, mm. upper castes in India don't think of themselves as having caste privilege. Mm. And it's, it really maps on quite neatly there. We are the norm. We don't have a caste identity. So when it's challenged, when just as racism or white supremacism is challenged, the response will be, I don't see caste. I'm above it. Just as people will say, I may be white, but I don't see race. Yeah. And this is how kind of, that is the privilege of being the unmarked norm, and I think that's where they mm. lethally overlap. Yeah. The other example one might put into this is, of course, Kashmir, uh, and the way in which um, Kashmir populations have been racialized with this. Oh, gosh, I mean, it feels like an occupation. My late father is Kashmiri. If you asked him where he was from, uh, he was from Kashmir, he was from Sirinagar. Um, but, of course, you know, Indians would claim him for themselves, and Pakistanis would claim him for themselves. But he was Kashmiri, and the plight of the Kashmiris is not one that we hear a great deal about, but, you know, it's characterised by all the hallmarks of oppression and occupation that we see elsewhere in the world, where you have a dominant, nationalising, imperial even, power. Um, but I can't help but think about the extent to which that's a legacy of partition too, um, and the particular norms and conventions which facilitated the distinction of those populations. It's perhaps worth adding to the picture that the, uh, there's a different set of stories that one might want to tell about the so-called new world. Uh, so there, too, the story of race in Argentina or in Brazil is connected with these European stories, but it's obviously developed autonomously the same just as, in, just as the white Australia policy was in some sense connected with Britain and the empire, but, but developed its own shape and forms. And I think, um, I mean, there is this interesting thing. It's, it's back to the difference between the places where, where, as it were, people think of the white people as coming out of the ground and the, and the other places where the white people are in charge, in Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, uh, North America, but they didn't come out of the ground there. And, and in order to explain their relations to everybody else, including the indigenous, the, the first peoples of these places, the, the language that ended up being used was very much the language of, of race, I think. So, so we've given you lots of examples. There was you. one question <laughs> so we should probably we should also... remember to address. Yeah. Good. Would you, in in, you in should... the last two yeah. minutes, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, do you remember the question? <laughs> it was about the structures of racism and who can be racist. Yes, well, what, what does it mean to be yeah. racist? Yes? Yeah. Tough well, one. On. It's a, it, it's... I mean, look, um, I mean, from a, I think from an ethical point of view, anybody can get into the frame of mind 
of the race experiment mind with respect to some system of categories. Uh, maybe maybe it's, it's, it's difficult for African Americans to get into that frame of mind in relation to white people in the United States. Maybe it's possible, but it's probably quite difficult. But they can get into that frame of mind in relation to, to, um, to, uh, to, new, to, to people they think of as new immigrants in the United States. They can get into racist attitudes. You can have racist attitudes to, to people of South Asian ancestry among African Americans in the United States. So I think, I mean, if, if that's your question, if the question is, can the fact that you're at the bottom end of one of the racial hierarchies, uh, does that somehow make it uh, impossible for you to, to, to practice racism? I think, I think it doesn't. But, but on the other hand, I don't accept the word reverse racism, the phrase, because racism is about a structure. It's about a power structure. Um, and again, I make the comparison with caste. Caste is a power structure. So when Dalits assert their identity in a caste-ridden society or when black people assert their identity in a white supremacist society, that is not reverse racism. That is a, if, you, if you just render racism about attitudes, it's not just an attitude. It's about institutional structures. It's about who has power. And I have found in Britain very often that if you talk about race and you talk about whiteness, very quickly the accusation of being a reverse racist will follow. And the fact is that there, just as you can't really have reverse sexism, because in a patriarchal world where men dominate, there is no such thing as reverse sexism. So yes, attitudinally, we can all be racist. We can all be sexist. Even women can be sexist. Black people can be racist. But if you're talking about race seriously as part of a historical power structure, then these easy reversals are not possible because the ground is not level. Yeah. One, oh, well, last point. I was going to say that. <laughs> I was going to say that. Oh, no, no, say, say, there's one more point. I've been applauded for shutting up. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that in my endless conversations with people involved in the policy process who want to measure integration, quote-unquote, and despite my best efforts to dissuade them from that, the only category that I can't get them to take seriously is when minorities start to become racist towards other minorities. That's always a good indication of integration at the moment. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Join me in. Thank <laughs> you. Ha, 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 ha.